Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have some returning friends for your holidays. It's all comedians for the holidays. Welcome back, Jenny Saldana. Jenny is a writer, actress, stand-up comedian, and a breast cancer rock star. All around hotness, she wrote, produced, and starred in Happy Cancer Chick, a web series inspired by her own battles with breast cancer. And yes, Jenny has been an advocate of mine, so she's really great on this episode. We have some really useful information for you to prevent breast cancer. She appeared in HBO's High Maintenance. Her video series, The Little Brown Girl Show, can be found on YouTube and Facebook Live. And she has a new show. It's called Desperate Digital Dating Diary. It's a TT talk. Like auntie. I know. I just made it. January 15th at the Triad Theaters in New York City. Tickets are available at triadnyc.com. Also welcome back, Holly Harper, creator and co-exec producer of Hello Late with Holly Harper on Brick TV and co-host of the nationally trending Twitter storytelling chat, Blurred Dating. Time Out Chicago named her popular sketch comedy show, American Candy, one of the five groups to watch. Holly works with Gold Comedy and Stand Up Girls, two programs that empower young women by teaching them stand-up comedy and is the creative consultant for the very successful Black Women in Comedy Laugh Fest here in New York City. And she recently appeared in The White Black at the Theater for the New City. And we talk about colorism on this show. It's a great episode. What's better for the holidays than a little talk about colorism? I think so. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail.com. Instagram is Friends Like Us Podcast, and our Twitter is Friends Like Us Tin. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. And now for our golden friends, thank you so much, TV, who's always backstage, you have the option to watch our recording live. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us. I put a link there every Sunday, so go and be golden. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies. It is hoodie season, so come on, folks. Coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. All available. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel. It's every Saturday. I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Jeskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out our fans who leave us reviews for the Friends Like Us podcast. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we even offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. And with Friends Like Us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. Booster up. Get vaccinated. And Black Lives Matter. We have Holly Harper and Ginny Saldana. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Thank you. I'll start... I'll start with you, Jenny. How was your holiday? I know you were traveling, had traveling hell. Traveling hell, girl. I was stuck in the Dominican Republic, didn't know what to cancel flights. I kept canceling them and canceling, canceling. Then not even that, while in Dominican Republic, a moped hit me and I had to pay her, which is, you know, 
driving while while being a tourist in a country like that, all liability falls on you. But other than that, it was the first time that my mom, my dad, my sister and I, my nuclear family were back in the Dominican Republic since we left in 1978. So it was a, it was really a special time. And it was really, we don't, we're not from that part of the country. Like we were in the mountains. We were like, you know, we weren't, we're from the city, but we were, it was beautiful and, and wonderful. And, and it, you know, as your parents age, you just want to create memories, you know, you don't want to, so it was just wonderful. Now I, I would address, I'm going to mention to our listeners that noise you hear in the background is not too loud because you're on the headphones, thank God. But Ginny is at currently a WeWork, which I thought didn't even exist anymore. After I know. I, I was like, I didn't even yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you shouldn't, yeah, it should just be a buzz. It shouldn't be a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm the loudest person in here right now. And I'll just be louder. So don't worry about it. <laughs> but why? I thought WeWork was... <laughs> They give you a WeWork cup. Yeah, wait, I gotta get a picture. Yeah, wait, there's more. Out. There's more. <laughs> oh my god, that's crazy. I thought I thought the thing was done though. I thought he lost money. And Me too. WeWork. I thought so too. But they have this program where that you can do this. They have this thing where you can do on demand if you just want office space. You can pay for the day, and I paid thirty nine dollars. They have unlimited coffee and tea and seltzer and. To sit here in a little corner and talk, and everybody's just like, you know, in their own little space, but it's not, it's fine. It's like a big coffee house. Yeah, it's like a big right? coffee house. Yes, it's like a big coffee Where house. You can get away, do some work, get away from your apartment. Yeah. Get away from the the isolation, which we'll be talking about. Yes. And it, it it helps a lot with that because it just gives you, you know, when you when you're when you're a comic and you're home and I'm working on other stuff and um I'm home alone a lot and it really affected me after the, the shut-in. So coming out here and feeling like I'm going somewhere and I go and I stop and I go and have lunch and come back and it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice. I do it about once or twice a week. I'm not here every day, obviously. Wow. Nice. Awesome. Well, good for you. I may have to do one. They need one in Harlem. They have them. They have them. They have them everywhere. Yes. I'm going to send you the link. So I'm going to send you the link so you can do the, the on-demand thing because you can just book it whenever you want. They have phone booths nice. and everything. Yeah, I may need that because sometimes in my own space, I get a little weird. It's like I, I end up playing Fortnite all day long. Yeah, that's the thing. Like that's you, you work, but then you get easily distracted. I'll start. And it's just a lot. It is. Well, welcome back. Welcome from the Dominican Republic. Now, Holly, welcome back to the show. I see that you recently were a part of a, a theater production. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's actually been extended three days. Um, uh, okay, it's called The White Blacks. It's by Melanie uh, Maria Goodrow, a fielder. She's a married lady now. Um, but it's about a Black family, a Creole Black family in the 1970s, and their birthday party of their matriarch dealing with like racial politics, colorism, and they have these whole passe blancs, people that passed for white that left. Um, and I play, it's funny, I have a line in the play where I'm like, I'm the Kunta Kinte of our Creole family. I'm like the pro-black one that people don't like. Yeah, like they just want to stay within this subset of we are Creole. We look down on uh, brown-skinned black people, they call them quackos, which a term I never even heard before the plays. I had never heard 
the term quacko is before the play, but this means brown skinned black people, people that are not Creole. Um, but then they hate white people. So they want to stay within this one little subset, but they praise lightness so much that some of their family just went for the gusto and decided to pass for white. So they're the passe blocks. So it's a really interesting play with a lot of like, a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of pain, a lot of humor, of course, this is black people. Um, but it's, uh, it's really good. And, um, and I've, it's been running for three weeks now. So I'm just really honored. Where is it running? It's at Theater for the New City in the Lower East Side on First Avenue at 10th Street. So I just, oh, get, nice. I just get off the L train right there at 14th Street and just walk down. And they extended it? They extended it three days. Um, so we're tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. But it's been really wild because you see people in the audience, black and white, well, white, I would say white and black, who really are like, what, what do you mean passe blancs? What do you mean pass for white? Like, I thought that was a rumor. Like, there's a lot of black people that didn't know that there were all these people that passed for white. And there are a lot of white people who have no idea about what colorism really even is because they're just dealing with racism. There's a deal with homophobia in the play, with misogyny within the play. Like, when you hear how characters, men and women talk, how men will be able to talk to women in the 1950s, it's, the writer is amazing. She's absolutely amazing. And there's a lot of, like, whoa, this is actually how we thought. Um, And this is how some people still think. But, yeah, that brown, yeah, it's it's amazing. So that's why I put this article in here. And Jenny, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I mean, you're Dominican, but Dominicans have their colorism issues too. I know. Very, very much a lot so. Of it. Very much so. But I had never heard about the, um, I never heard of the, what is it, Passe Blancs, but I had heard about the uh, brown paper bag test, but I had, I never heard of it. I didn't hear about it until I was an adult. Like it wasn't something, it wasn't that, I think that's more of a, Black American thing. Latinos didn't do a black, a, a, they just, and Latinos just pretty much, um, it's just lightness. If you're light, you're light, and they like you, it doesn't matter. And if you're dark, you're dark, they don't like you. Like, if there's a, there's no passing for anything, anything lighter, anything lighter is just considered not black in, in, in Dominican Republic. So basically, they'll just look at someone like, let's say, Zoe Zaldana, my namesake, right? She would be considered black. Right, because she's dark skinned, whereas uh, Judy Reyes, Zoe Saldana, yeah, she's a little darker. She's browner. Yeah, she's browner. She's yeah, and um, but then we're like Judy Reyes, who was the the Latina on on Scrubs. She's Dominican. She would just be considered, and obviously, uh, obviously, a, a, an Afro Latina, but she's lighter, so she's just considered not black. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how we, um, the issues of colorism are so complicated, unique to each culture. And then white people just don't even give a shit. They're like, what are you doing? I've had many conversations in my past with white people about like this. And they go, what are you talking about? But go ahead, Jenny. No, what I was going to say is that they'll say things like, and things that I even heard this week while with my family in the Dominican Republic. Oh, she's cute, but the father ruined her giving her that mouth. Or she's cute, but the father or the mother ruined her because she gave her that nose. They'll say things like oh, that. feature-wise. Yeah, feature-wise. Oh, talk too much. No, 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 no. <laughs> feature-wise, if your if you're features, if your features, you, you may be light-skinned. But if your features are more African, they'll be like, oh, she's cute. Thank God she's light because she got that face. Like, they'll say things like that. 
Yeah. Now you're considered light. I, I don't know what I'm considered. Um, Me neither. I don't know what I'm because I wouldn't say you would be considered. I don't. I don't think I'm considered light, but I'm also not considered dark. I've never been called. I think you're in the middle, moving towards light, but not light, light. But you're like in the middle of light. You're like midlight. I would say brown, right? Yeah, I would call myself. I call myself a brown girl. You know, it's really, yeah, that's right. Well, because I'm, right. I mean, I know I'm considered light, but not light, light. Because I have a sister who's very light. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a sister that people have thought she's Mariah Carey. Like, they, they you know, so. Yeah, like, yeah. So, yeah, I guess I, I grew up under like that light, but not light, light. Yeah, mid-light. I'm mid-light. I'm mid-light. Because my sister, my sister is not, my sister is also mid-light, but has straight, natural straight hair. So she looks lighter. Does that make Well, let me just put some historical on this. The Tragic History of the Brown Paper Bag Test by Genevieve Carlton, written in All That's Interesting. The Brown Paper Bag Test was a form of discrimination used to exclude dark-skinned Black people by comparing their skin tone to the color of brown paper bag. Those who were lighter than the bag were allowed into the club. Those whose skin failed the test were rejected. And while the ideas behind the Brown Paper Bag Test originated in the earliest days of slavery, it led to a long discriminatory tradition of colorism that explicitly privileged light skin over dark well into the 20th century. Actually, in 1996, the Harvard history, which sounds like a long time ago, but it feels like yesterday to me. In 1996, the Harvard historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. wrote that not long after he arrived at Yale as an undergraduate, some of the brothers who came from private schools in New Orleans held a bag party. It was 1969, the year of Martin Luther King's assassination. Gates, born in 1950 in West Virginia, had never heard of a bag party. But look at this. In 1996, this happened. So a Creole barbershop owner told Kerr, that paper bag parties were common in the past. The parties might take several forms, and the most explicit, the host would nail a brown paper bag at the door. Anyone darker than that bag couldn't enter. The test traces its roots back to the days of slavery under the one-drop rule. Anyone with a single drop of African blood was considered black. In practice, Louisiana's black population came in all shades. So I'm going to ask you, Hallie, what new information did you learn from doing this play? Well, I got to admit, I grew up with uh, my mother. My mother is super light-skinned and has straight hair. And I grew up listening to stories about her telling us about going to brown paper bag parties in the 60s. So I grew up knowing all about brown paper bag parties. Um, But within the play, I realized that, I mean, I always knew this, but it really cemented for me how much Black people could pass, but other Black people knew they were Black. And how a lot of white people just had no idea. And a lot of these Black people that passed, they married white people who never knew they were Black. Like in the play, there's a couple that they're both passing, but there's also a woman who's passing whose husband doesn't even know she's Black. They're Tyler Perry's movie. Yeah, there was a movie. There was a movie that was nominated last year. I got that was called Passing, and it's about a woman who marries. That was a great movie. But um, just the the lengths that people go to to pass—that's what I didn't know. Like, 
completely, it's almost like you're in a witness protection program. You know, like you, it's almost like you have no past. If you're going to stay in contact with relatives, it's through a P.O. box. Um, never knowing what city they moved to. Um, children not knowing they're black. You know, um, just so many things. Like going out of your way to not know about certain things. To not know about um, anything racial politics. To not know about uh, regions. To not know about history. It's like you have to completely unlearn everything that's black within you, which you don't even think about because you take for granted. But if you're passing to your husband and his family, imagine all the things that you would have to know in the 1950s that you would have to unlearn. I really, I really found that fascinating in the movie too, when, when, um, when she meets the other woman and, and he, her husband calls her Nig. And he's like, and she's like, he's like, oh, that's his nickname. That's his nickname for him, for me. That's what, and then he says, oh, because in the summer you think she's a nigger because she gets so dark. And the other woman is sitting there like, I can't believe you're saying this to me. I can't believe this is happening. And it's the first time I ever heard it was around 1990 something. I was in my, you know, this woman that I looked up to, but she was Jamaican. So I thought it was an island black thing because she was Jamaican. And so she said, oh yeah, my mother had a brown paper bag. And I was like, what's that mean? She said, oh, they hold it up to your face. And, and I'm like, I was appalled. And I was like, well, that must be a Jamaica thing. Like that's what I thought. Cause I had never heard of it, the concept until, you know, that moment, until that woman told me what it was. Yeah, the parties that my mother went to, there would be somebody at the door with the brown paper bag. So you were like not even getting past the door. And um, yeah, it's really wild. One thing in the play that really struck me was how much money was tied to it. Like people were like, if, if we are found out that we are black, we can't have these jobs. We have to work at a post office. We have to do this. So, so much of it is not just like, I want to be white. It's, it's about, I want access to what whiteness brings. You know, so it's like you, you want to hate these people yeah. I'm sorry, it's like you want to hate these people because they're abandoning their whole past and their family. But then also, if you're that light, and you, I'm not saying I would do it, but if you're that light and other people, everybody thinks you're white anyway, but you just can't get this job or get this thing, I see how people did it. I don't, I hate the fact that it happened, but I see it. Oh, I was just going to say that it, I, I understand the point because, yeah, you want to hate the people, but it might just be a form of survival. I think I would hate the people who hold the parties, you know, but I wouldn't hate the people who did it because that's the only way I could get this job. And that's the only way I was going to get in the door. And and there's and it, and it, in those times, you didn't have much of a choice. And, it, and, and it, unfortunately, it was it was a huge privilege and it was a privilege and a um, and um, I, I would say. Uh, for lack of a better term, a blessing because they could they could pass and get away with things and, and maybe provide better for their families in ways that they that other people couldn't. But the fact that it boiled down to that is heartbreaking. But that division is what makes America great. That's what it is. It's division amongst every single group. It's it defines America, dividing groups. So however we can divide them, and it really, the source of it, like you said, Holly, is money. It's as access, it's such an important point, access to wealth, access to a job. 
you know, and a lot of times I do find this generation, this younger generation really doesn't have a lot of empathy for that, for what people had to do. Yeah. And they just have a judgment to it. Yeah, but you know, life will cure that. <laughs> you know what I mean? You say... You stay around for a couple of generations, you start thinking, wow, you know, this is a much uh, deeper, like, than I realized. And, you know, everybody, we're born into a program that's already in progress. You know, like that movie, that show has been going way before you ever stepped here. So, you know, a lot of times you really do have to look at people from the past and understand what, what, the, what their givens were. Like, this is what they were working with. So the judgment needs to come with a lot. Like needs to be like one heap of judgment, but two heaps of understanding for that judgment. I love it. Um, a retired, they were talking about even in church, um, the brown paper back test wasn't the only race-based test that featured black America. A retired Philadelphian recalled a test at the local Episcopal church. The prol proliferation of bag parties shows how deeply Black Americans internalized racist ideas. So, and in the 1920s, they, the Black blues singer Big Bill Brunzi explained the Jim Crow system in verse. If you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, you can stick around. If you're Black, get back. I remember that. That was a children's rhyme. There was like a, I remember, I remember hearing kids sing that. It was like a hand clapping song. I remember that. You like you all right? If you brown, stick around. If you black, get back. I get back. I remember that when I was little. And oh wow! And you didn't even. It's so funny because you just get the rhythm. It's it's, you know, my own like history of dealing with colorism. I always. My mom can be very, you know, our relationship is not an easy one. But I, the one thing I will say. Well, she's done a lot of things that are great, but one of the things that always stood out to me when I was growing up was her emphasis on how color is not important. She drilled that into me from a very young age. And I, I remember thinking it was so important to her um, that looks don't matter. That was, that was her one thing. She goes, it's what's on the inside. She always emphasized that to me, drilled it into me at a very young age. I grew up in white neighborhood. So it was important to do that as well because I was in a school system with mostly white kids, people that didn't look like me. So I'm glad that she did that. And then it was interesting going to an all black school. I saw it. I saw more of an emphasis on skin color and it was so confusing to me because I didn't understand. I was like, I hear I was dealing with racism with white kids who just didn't like me because I was just a black kid, right? Now I'm at a black school and I'm dealing with this division amongst light skin, especially in Chicago. This division between light skin and dark skin was so, I, I was like, for me, it was laughable at just nine years of age. I never, I never went there. I never fed into that. Even as a, an adult, I would have some of my friends who were lighter than me go, when you get tanned, you look dirty. And I, I, I just was taken aback by those comments. And also, oh, yeah, yeah. I had friends who used to say things like that, like, look at you. get. And I, I, I would look at, even in college, University of Illinois, and there's a comment in this article about there's not one person who hasn't heard, like, 
sororities like AKAs, deltas, like you're pretty dark to be an AKA or, you know, you should be a delta because you're dark. At U of I, that was the one thing I never wanted to be a part of the sorority system for that reason alone. No diss to anyone who is a sorority who is listening to this. Good for you. I know there's much more to sororities now than there ever was. And it's a good, it's a good institution. It's a good network of friends. It's a good network for business. So I'm not dissing that, but I never wanted to be a part of it for that reason. At U of I specifically, I noticed the AKs were all light skinned. I always felt like I couldn't be a part of that group because I wasn't light enough. And then I also felt like I couldn't be a part of the, the Deltas because I wasn't dark enough. And then I, and, and that is a crazy, that's a crazy idea. It's supposed to be about um, networking, resources. This is how blind I first, I, I would have never said, oh, those are all lights. I would have never compared. I would just be like, oh, those are black sororities. And, you know, like the first time I knew that I was an other was in college because I didn't, I never so I never, I didn't know. I grew up in Washington Heights. That is a Dominican enclave. You know, I then lived in Little Havana. The name says it all. So when I went to the University of Pittsburgh was the first time that I was an other, that I was a minority. I was never a minority in Miami or in Washington Heights. So so because of that, I just saw people as either Latino, black or white, whatever color they were. So but I just looked at their more of their ethnicity than their colors, because there are Latinos who are this color and there are Latinos who are, you know, white is, you know, anyway. Latinos can be like a, a range of things. They could be everything because they could. No, they could be Asian Latinos. There could be Asian Latinos. You know what I'm saying? They're they're. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so um, that's what we call them, Tuchino Latino. But that's our generic name for Asian Latinos. So if, long as, they, if long as their name was Sanchez or Gomez, I just always put them on this pile. So like the fact that there were other piles within those piles, I did not know until I heard about that. So I didn't. I was clueless. Wow. I went to DePaul University in Chicago. And I remember, because you know, I was in a theater school, and when you're in a, when you're in a theater conservatory, you don't have time for anything. Like you're just there, you have no time. But I remember the AKAs, and some girls were like, "You, you would be here. Like, why are you not with us?" And I always said it was about theater school, but I kind of felt like it wasn't right for me. You know, I just felt like the chapter that I saw from the kids' room, they were all light skinned. But there was more than just being light-skinned. They they all, I mean, I, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but they all just seemed very basic. Just very basic. Very basic. Like, we wear our hair like this, we shop like this, we dress like this, we date these guys, we go to these places. You know, and I was a girl that went to, like, a Quaker boarding school and then was in an acting program. Like, I was not in that headspace. You know what I mean? And And also, I had dealt with enough colorism already from growing up that I just, you know, I was supposed to be a debutante and I dropped out <laughs> before we, you know, I, I got found out that I had to, I was supposed to take classes on the weekends on um, entertaining and homemaking and stuff like that. I was supposed to be one of those girls at a cotillion, 
And so a lot of these respectability politics and colorism, I really rejected early on. So they always just felt not right to me. And so when I would see it, I would just hear about, I would just hear about, I would just hear in my mind those brown paper bag parties that my mother went to in the 60s and it would freak me out. And the comb, the combing through the hair. Can they get the comb through the hair? Yes, that's in the play too. In the oh, play. is it? Yeah, Tell in me the about play, that. at the cotillion, there's a blind man who passes a comb through your hair to see if you can get the comb through your hair just to see if you're supposed to be at the party. Now, what is the message? Why and who, who decided this was the time for this play? Like, Well, the writer, Melanie Goodrow, she is Creole from New Orleans. And so she's writing, some of it's based in her family, but I get the feeling that maybe 30% of it is based in her family. But um, she wrote this play and it was a one act and it evolved into a play. I was in a production two and a half years ago, right before the pandemic. And now again, and it's just, it's a really beautiful story because it shows how the message to me in the play is how we're taught to hate each other and how we're taught to prize lightness so much. Like if you prize lightness so much, your daughters might take it but one step further and go full white. So the dangers of prizing lightness and whiteness is, uh, can have real horrible repercussions for your family. Why? In New Orleans, does she does she go into like the slave travel? No, it's really it starts in the seventies and there's flashbacks in the fifties. I've always been curious about the Creole. I never understood that. Can you can you give me a little bit more? Like, is there is there any emphasis of that in the play to explain the Creole? what that is? Well, they don't really explain what Creole is, but they go out of the way to say that Creoles are Black people. They're not white people, but they are a complete own subset to each of themselves. And they completely lean on sticking together and not selling their homes to dark-skinned Black people, not marrying dark-skinned Black people. So even just the idea of marrying, like my character's mother uh, married, a, uh, had children with a dark-skinned Black man, and that's why my grandmother still does not completely like me. She likes my sister, who had a lighter father, but because my father is darker, there's, like, even an anger with me. There's an anger with me wearing natural hair. There's an anger with me being pro-Black. It's like everything Black is looked down upon, but the Creole is where you should lie, right in between these lines. I was going to say that there's... If you ever saw the show Indian Matchmaker, every, because the mothers, the parents, they, they go, they always say, we want her, we don't want her to be too dark. We want her to be fair. We want her to be very fair. They say things like that. And I will say that um, a long time ago, again, I, I come from the Dominican Republic and I was just there yesterday. And um, I'm very proud of my Dominican people who are now embracing their natural hair because the Dominican blowout is famous. It is because they'll give you, they'll, they'll make your hair flow like, shh, shh, shh. and it's because, because of this, it's because of this. And, um, but now there, everybody's wearing their hair in braids and in twists and natural, a lot of natural hair I'm seeing, which makes me very happy. Um, because not too long ago, I'll say in the early 2000s in the aughts, I, I had a little cousin, I had my hair natural and she was a little girl. And she looked at me, she goes, you sure look ugly with your hair like that. And her father, my cousin, she's like, oh, these kids. And I was like, you put it in there. Why would a child tell me that if you didn't put that in her head? You know, so. My grandmother used to look at me with my, when I went natural, she said, oh, is that what you're doing? <laughs> um, 
Well, my mom still says, my mom says, one time I had my hair pulled back and somebody told me, oh, I didn't recognize you. You look so different. She goes, oh, she didn't recognize you because you look so respectable. I had Winnie Mandela say it to me. Wow. What? And my first introduction, I remember I went to South Africa to do a show. I was very young and I hugged her and she had on a, a, a wig, basically. It was a straight wig because in South Africa at the time, I think in the temperature wise, right? It's harder to have your hair like the way I have it right now because it's so hot. Hair just falls out. That's why you have a lot of like shaved heads in beautiful women in South Africa, by the way. But it's hard to keep this hairstyle like this, like in your hair in hot temperature. Like I've noticed like in South Africa, like it's almost, so a lot of women shave their hair there and but they also have the great heads. I'm always like, I remember when I was there, I was like, I felt like so American the way I looked. And when I talk, when you see beauty there, it's in all colors and it's so celebrated and they look so authentic that I've, I was envious on such a level. But I hugged Winnie Mandela and she goes, oh, what are you, oh, is that what we doing now with the hair? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like, we try to get back to Mother Africa. <laughs> she did welcome me home first. So, I was, you know, that was that was great. But I remember thinking like, wow, even in Africa, like, you know, and that was just a moment. So I'm not I'm generalizing right now. Right. But I would say like it was a shocking thing for me because I was like, we're this is me attempting to get back to my roots and I'm here and this is what it is. But yeah, this um, colorism. I had a friend who was at University of Illinois who was Creole. And she was, I didn't know she was black. I wasn't sure what she was. I had never seen it before. She was so light. The only features were her eyebrows and her, maybe her lips were, were bigger and pink. But she, I mean, we would go around with her and the way people talked to her was so different than the way they talked to me. And the way that people, and, but her emphasis on black was, was strong. I, I'll never forget that. And she also could hide in here because she spoke Spanish, right? Oh, okay. But they didn't know a lot of times that she spoke Spanish. A lot of times. So she waited tables and she would hear all of the racist comments coming from the busboys if they were Spanish or the cooks if they were Spanish. And then she would start speaking Spanish and they, they would go, oh, shit. And not only did she, she spoke it well, too. <laughs> so I, I loved watching, traveling with her because I could see her. It's such a social experiment to walk around with someone who's passing on so many levels, not just black, but also like. But is, ahead, is there, and this, it, it, pardon my ignorance, but is there a difference between Creole and Cajun? Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know if they're, they're, the words are the same. or if That history in New Orleans is so fascinating. I feel like we don't delve into it enough. No, we don't. Play. But one thing about colorism that always strikes me is how, as Black people, a lot of times we don't want to admit the colorism in our own families. You know, like I'll never forget when I was engaged to my husband. My husband is a, is a, is a dark brown-skinned man, beautiful dark-skinned uh, dark man. And my, we went to an uncle's funeral in Philadelphia. This is like in the late 90s. And um, one of the kids and one of the little boys in our family, I was like, oh, this is my fiancé. This is Keith. You can just call him Uncle Keith. And my little nephew looked at me and he goes, you can't be with him. He's 
black, like black, black. And he was the same shade as my fiance. Same shade, both brown skin, but you can't. And I said, well, honey, what do you think you look like? And he said, I'm not black. I'm not black. He got like really upset. And then, you know, I had a cousin, had to come apologize to me. And I don't know where he gets that, but I'm like, where did he get that? Did he get that at school? Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to assume it came from her because I'm not just going to assume that, but he definitely got that message. He definitely did. And I remember when I was engaged to my husband, there were several people, a couple friends, couple family that were like, their kind of undertone was, I don't understand why you'd be marrying this dark skinned man when you could marry someone lighter. It's in all of our families. Like if we we're really to be honest about it. Um, it's always about bet- bettering the race. Like I've been told that like, you lightening the, oh, you're lightening the blood. I was, I was, it, I was almost married to an Irishman. They were all like, ooh, <laughs> you're lightening the blood. You're bettering the race. Yeah, lightening up the race. Yeah. It goes back to what Holly was talking about. It comes from this idea of access, of what you're going to have access to. Better jobs, better people treat you. People do treat you different. You know, I I just finished doing a, a, a speaking engagement in Milwaukee for the uh, greater... Milwaukee area feminist in Milwaukee. Part of feminism is about talking about equity, accessibility to jobs. And something that was really deep for me was reflecting back on my opportunities as a stand-up comedian based on my ability to communicate in spaces that are mostly white. That is something that blew me away that I I oftentimes feel a certain empathy for comics who didn't grow up around white people or don't feel comfortable around white people, but have the same talent, if not more than me, but cannot seem to get in these spaces because of colorism, because of the way they talk and their ability to communicate. And that prevents that access and that ability to get to a position And um, this all feeds into that. And that's why when we talk about equity, like this colorism thing prevents equity and fairness. It really does. I mean, I, I used to not even think about like when I would sit at the cellar at the table, the fact that I was there, I, I would feel so great about it. But I, I would often see a comic that would come in that didn't have that communication that I could, that I have or with the owners and I, I would see them working so hard to just work in that anyway. No, I, no, I definitely see. I definitely see. I mean, there are times where I've looked at comedians and, you know, like during the Black Women Comedy Laugh Fest, there are comedians I looked at and I was like, oh my God, she is absolutely brilliant. Like she is bananas and brilliant. But I could see how they would not be received by certain people, you know, like they'd be like, oh, they'll play the, like, she's good for the black rooms, you know, but not just good, not just really good. And there were several comics that I saw where I was just like, wow, I could definitely see gatekeepers holding them back. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's years of being in this business. I see it now. I see like this industry, it's obviously an industry based on looks. So colorism definitely plays into it. The people that, I mean, we're about to talk about Irene Cara, right? And her passing, Jennifer Bills. We, a lot of people didn't even know, probably still don't know that Jennifer Bills is black. 
Oh, they don't know she's black? There are people who don't know that Jennifer Bills is black. I mean, they... Okay, I did not know Jennifer Bills was black. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know she was black until I until this moment right now. You just told me Jennifer Beals is black. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> I never seen Jennifer Beals say anything about ever being black. Well, how about Slash from Guns and Roses? How about does anybody know that Slash from Guns and Roses is black? Well, more importantly, the The Rock. How many people? There's a lot of people who are m- more comfortable with him just being. Let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about the fact that he's a black man. He is very much a Dwayne black Johnson, man. You're like Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> like a low, like that's like the black, first of all, that's like the blackest name. Like your name should be like Daryl Jefferson. Like that's a, you know what I mean? Like that's a very, very black name. But he, I, I see how he has said things in the past few years that have really, really made some of that, uh, his Republican or MAGA followers, like, piss them off. Like, how dare you be Black right now? I have seen that. But I I love what you just said, Marina, because you're right. He he is a person where people were like, let's just not talk about it. He is, he's Mr. Cellophane. He's transparent, apparently, because he can, he's treated in a way that uh, other Black men would not be treated. And yeah. it's true. If you look he at has- the project does, they never, they don't really put him in those Black spaces where he's going to be identified as Black. They don't put him in a black comedy where he's a black person in a movie with an aunt, or they don't do that. He's they put him in that singular lane. So and one, then they put him with a white woman or a light skinned woman. So then, it, then they'll say it's an interracial relationship. But no, it's because it makes other people comfortable to see him with a white woman. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have always smelled what The Rock is cooking. <laughs> he made me watch wrestling before he was an actor. I was like, I am really watching wrestling right now. Like, I'm really watching this. <laughs> now, Irene Cara, it was so sad, her passing. I love that in Essence magazine, Brooklyn White emphasizes that she was also the star of Sparkle, which I they very rarely bring up when they bring up her history, they say flash dance, right? Um, and what fame. But Sparkle, I remember in high school when people would talk about Sparkle, I felt like I wasn't black if I didn't know Sparkle. <laughs> <laughs> Did you look? Jenny's like, I didn't know Sparkle. Look, I didn't, know, like, I didn't know Sparkle until I went to college and I made my first black friends. And they made me, they made me watch Sparkle every weekend. Oh, really? It was watch Sparkle. And we would watch and then I got into it. <laughs> it was, I did not know anything about it until I, until I met African-American friends. It's so fascinating. Irene Kara, how, I'm going to ask you, Holly, were you influenced by her? Did you, were you a fan of Irene Kara? How were you, how did it affect you? Huge, huge fan of Irene Kara because, you know, growing up, we didn't really see many black girls on screen. And I grew up, I wanted to be an actress. And when I saw fame as a kid, I was like, oh my God, like, that's, she's in New York. She's like, I just identified with her. And she has such a sweet spirit about her 
on camera and just had joy for life. But then she was deep. I followed fame. I followed sparkle. I, when I bought the flash, I bought what a feeling on a 45. Like I was full on Irene Cara. Absolutely loved her. I, I love the character she played on fame because I identified with it. She was a brown Latina and she was, and I grew up in New York. So I used to, you know, you drive, you pass by the, the school and you just go, oh my goodness, that's the fame school. And you just want to see people dancing on taxi cabs. And so being a New Yorker and seeing her on there, it just made me want to be in, in show business even more. Like I was in, you know, in high school, in, in elementary school productions and stuff like that. And I just, I wanted to go to that school and I wanted to be her. I wanted to be Irene Cara. Yeah. I went to theater school. I remember I auditioned and went to theater school. And I remember thinking about Irene Cara, like I could do this. I could do this. You know, we had a, uh, we do YouTube live every Saturday and there was a guest. I know you listen to the show and I'm forgetting your name right now, but you were on our live and you were saying you went to school with Irene Cara and you, and that's the thing about New York City is like Irene Cara is such a, a New York City person that you had kind of grown up with if you were here and you knew her and she was just so f- iconic. She was born in the Bronx in 1959 and in an interview with Mickey Burns for the Profile series, she referred to herself as a working child actress as she spent her youth performing in plays and singing on the soundtracks for Christmas productions. At 16, she got her start starring as the lead character in 1976's Sparkle. Inspired by The Supremes, the film tracked the life of a New York girl group and culminated with the industry ascension of the film's namesake. Three years later, she also had a leading role in Roots. The Next Generation as Bertha George, the mother of Roots author, Alex Haley. Now, she catapulted to fame in 1980 for her portrayal of Coco Hernandez in Fame, that famous scene of her taking off her shirt, which every comedian has satirized, right? In the role she sang and co-wrote the award-winning title cut, promptly becoming a renowned talent. She took home the 1980 Oscar for Best Original Song Award, beating out Dolly Parton's nine to five and Willie Nelson's on the road again. Now, I, my intern who's listening to this, my assistant who's listening to this, I kind of got on her about the short description. And the reason I got on her about that, because she just said that she passed in, in the blurb. And I said, no, 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 no. The reason is so important. This is why I have assistants is not just to have them, but also to educate them about people they don't know. Find like young people today, it's not just about someone past. You know, you look at that, you oh, they're old, they passed. I don't really need, but you need to really look at this woman's career to understand how it's going to affect your career moving forward. Look at the things she she's done here. Oscar for Best Original Song Award, beating out Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Willie Nelson mm-hmm. beat out Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. You got to look at that. You got to examine that. You got to go back and really look at her career. And she still had to sue, by the way. She mm-hmm. had to fight. Did you did you know about those lawsuits? I'll go with you, Jenny. Or did you know? I didn't know that until until I read the article. I didn't know that. But I mean, but that's as you look back, that's that's every recording. I mean, Prince went through it. TLC went through it. You know, it's so sad that a woman who accomplished so much and to be the first woman of color to win an Oscar for a non 
acting role. I didn't know that either about her. Again, and it was once more, 1984. Yeah, twice. First black woman to win an Oscar for, yeah, twice. Twice. I mean, I'm so, so impressed by her. And to your point, I love what you said about, about educating your your interns and educating, because I do think that the, the world is now, because it's so big, it's actually so small, because you can make your world just this big and never see anything. You can listen to one music, listen, see one genre of music, see, hear one genre of television. Whereas, like, I, I always quote this woman, the owner of Jimmy's Corner, uh, my, my neighborhood bar, and the only Black-owned bar still in Times Square. The owner, there was a young woman by the jukebox, and they're known for their jukebox, and they're, and she goes up to her, and she goes, what what happened? And the, the owner was, she was Polish, her husband was Black, J- Jimmy, and she had a thick accent. She goes, what happened, honey? You don't find anything you like? And the girl said, oh, everything's so before my time. And she looked at her. She goes, that's bullshit. Beethoven's before my time. And I know who he is. He goes, let me tell you something, honey. Rihanna's going to be dead and gone. And we're still going to listen to Al Green. <laughs> and I thought that was... <laughs> Well, but Rihanna's makeup. I mean, it's it's an. It, I mean, she Rihanna's an example, and I'm not dissing on Rihanna. Don't come at me. But it's a point to make. I do find that a lot, and it's crazy because I'll know, like my kids. I make my kids. My daughter is 15. My son is 10. I make them listen to everything, and so they will know music. Like my daughter can tell the difference between Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday when she when I hear it because I make her. But my grandmother and my parents had me listen to all music. Uh, like I grew up listening to jazz. I grew up listening to blues. I grew up, you know, Muddy Waters. I grew up listening to Coltrane and Mangus and all these different things. And then I went as a teenager, I went through a period where I only listened to the Shirelles and the Supremes. And I find that a lot of younger people don't know music from before 1999. Don't know, like, you ever seen those videos on YouTube where they show young people, like in the music industry, they show them videos from like 20, 30 years ago. And they're like, oh my God. Like I saw a video recently where they showed these very young rappers, Busta Rhymes, put your hands where your eyes can see. And they're like, oh my God, what is this? Wow. I never heard this. Oh, Busta? They don't have have it. Yeah. I'm like, they don't know Busta Rhymes? Like, that's just one generation ago. Like that's why they had those two kids. Remember those two kids were listening to Phil Collins and they're like yes. the video of them went viral of them just like blown away. I, I think it's because of all of the streaming and the, the fact that you now can choose what you listen to. Mm-hmm. You can also choose to tap out of history of music. Like my sister asked me recently, she goes, how do you get, where did you get your taste in music from? I go, my father, you know, we have different dads. I go, my dad loved to play music for us and tell us who we were listening to. My uncle Buzz would always tell me about Billie Holiday. I read her auto. She's wrote her own. She, Billie Holiday was one of the first to write her own autobiography. Billie Holiday. She had the shit grit and the mother wit. Best line ever. And it's like this type of history is what shows you how to move forward in your own career. It shows you how to navigate Irene Cara, unfortunately, had to sue the founder of the network records for $10 million. She claimed she had lost out on millions of dollars in due to imbalanced contracts. That's information moving forward as to why people today are having issues with the music industry. While you have someone like Taylor Swift is being heralded as this woman, when we don't even look at Irene Cara and what she had to go through. 
I didn't even know this story until I read this. I didn't either. And I'm I'm very, very surprised. But to your point, Marina, also not only did your dad influence you a lot with music, but I think our generation, Gen X, we wanted to watch MTV. So me, a girl from Washington Heights, knows Def Leppard and knows and knows and loves Van Halen and loves Guns N' Roses because I wanted to watch MTV. Whereas and so I was that's what I was exposed to. And I know music that wouldn't be that you know, that other people who weren't in an enclave, like who, who didn't have MTV, wouldn't know. They wouldn't know what was playing because the music that was playing on MTV was not what was playing on Z100 here in New York City at that time. Right. But I wanted to watch MTV. And I think in its exception, when it started, it really did us a service. It really did help us enrich our lives in, in being exposed to different music. I want my MTV. And also, they, they and of course, MTV was problematic. I, I got to say, because they didn't play enough black videos. Well, I mean, no, they did. I the first one like, they played was Billie Eddie, Jean. Is it Eddie Rabbit? <laughs> Eddie Money. <laughs> oh, Eddie Money. What, uh, the one, um, I'm going to dun, 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 dun. We're going to walk on to Electric Avenue. It's Eddie Grant. Yes, yeah, Grant. and then we take it higher. And that's what I was like, oh, what is that? <laughs> that sounds different. I remember listening to Musical Youth and then my mother being like, I think they're singing about marijuana. <laughs> they're like, pass the Dutchie. The Dutchie the the How about I saw them on the Saturday Night Live and that's the first time I saw them was they performed on, they performed on Saturday Night Live and they performed yeah, they past the Dutchie. They were a bunch of little kids singing about marijuana. They really were. I think streaming is, you know, we talk about colorism and division. I do believe that on some level, uh, I say this, it's sort of kind of funny, but streaming is further dividing us. Like it, it has a lot to do with where we are as a country. I know we love to stream and we love, but you know, the less TV we have, like you remember during like the holidays, you would see Charlie Brown but now you have the option to watch it on Apple TV if you want. It's not like readily. And a lot of people don't have cable anymore. They don't have like just regular network. They they choose what they're going to Everything watch. is selective. It's all a la carte. We live in an a la carte world. Whereas I feel like now, you, before you had to buy the meal, everything is like, I'll just take this and this and this and that. Like, for instance, that there's a TV show called Yellowstone that I just found out is like the biggest show. I was like, I never even heard of this show. Yeah, we've had one of the actors on here. Oh, wow. Wow. But I was like, huh? And they were like, yeah, Yellowstone. And, I, and then I started doing research. I was like, oh, it's very big in Republicans. Like Blue Bloods. Do you know what I mean? I was like, okay, I've never even seen Blue Bloods. But I'm like, but, you know, we used to have, our culture used to be a lot more collective. It was a collective thing. Everyone wants the Cosby show. Like if it were on today, not every, I think it would only be black people. Who, I mean, barring all the stuff we know, you know, um, I think that you're so right because we can, we live in an a la carte society. People won't know the joys of watching the Cosby show. I'm sorry. I was just saying for my daughter's generation, I just found out a lot of them, they don't watch TV at all. They just listen to podcasts. They don't watch any TV. Oh, well, that's good for me. That is good for you. <laughs> a lot of them, they don't even watch TV. They watch short form things on YouTube and they listen to podcasts. They don't even watch TV. I was like, Wow. I, not to name drop, but I did do a scene with Steve Buscemi. Now, I was just sitting there being in awe, but 
long time ago, Louis C.K. went before the controversy. He did this thing and um, Steve Buscemi, Steve Buscemi was behind the bar and we were on a break. And I remember him saying, "How I forgot why we were talking about music and what we listened to, but he says, how does anyone introduce themselves to new music now? And it stayed with me, that question. He goes, how do you discover something new? And I was, I remember thinking, wow, you're right. I don't listen to the radio anymore. Uh, I have Spotify and Spotify has all my favorite songs. I just listen to all my favorite songs from back in the day. I just repeat them. I, I New house music I get from podcasts. So, but it's still my genre of what I want to listen to. The only reason I I knew of Eddie Van Halen and all that was because I grew up in Chicago and we had some of the best radio stations uh, in the world. Chicago was very diverse. So you, as a black kid growing up, you were introduced to all types of music. So I have like, I like soft rock, <laughs> which Keith Robinson gets annoyed with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Yacht Rock too. I love Yacht Rock. Uh, but I, I listened to all of it. I knew all of it. And it was it's funny because in New York, when I when we would do karaoke and I would play it like Von Jovi or whatever, people would be like, you know that shit? And I'm like, I grew up in Chicago. I knew all kinds of music. But it's strange. I don't know how people are introduced to music today. I know how. How? How? You have kids. <laughs> but it's like, I know music because of my kids. Well, how do they get it? What I do, and I start doing this experiment, is if I if I want them to tune in, we will start watching videos. Like you go to YouTube Music, and I just let them show me what they ever they want to show me, and then all of a sudden, like I mean, I wouldn't even know who Doja Cat was uh, until like my kids were like, "Oh yeah, Doja Cat," and now I love Doja Cat more than my daughter loves Doja Cat. You know, so it's like if you, but they know all the music, so just let them be like, "What are you guys listening to?" And then sometimes, honestly, I will go on Billboard, you know, Billboard.com music and then see the top 10 and I'll go through it and be like, okay, I like this. I don't like that. Or I don't know what they're saying or what are they talking about? But now I have to, if my kids don't bring it to me, I have to go out of my way to find new music. But you got, I find it. And on Spotify, you can go on uh, Spotify and just be like, what's top 10 right now? Yeah, but who's doing mix. that? But, no, but I mean, I'm just saying... You know, you don't want to do that because you want to hear what you want to hear. You know what I mean? I mean, how many times have you watched an award show and been like, who are these people? I don't know yeah. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that um, we stopped listening to mu new music after a certain age. We just like our music. Not that you're not exposed to things, but we're, we stop seeking new music after a certain age. Um, they say around, around 35. I mean, you'll learn new things because you'll hear things like, I mean, like you'll be out and be like, oh, what's that song? And you'll, you know, I jazam it. And I'm like, oh, I want to hear that song, things like that. But it isn't if it isn't because I, I still watch SNL. So I watch the musical guests and see who they are. And because and, it's usually up and coming of people who are hot right now. It wasn't for that or watching like or or, or, or talk shows where people they'll put a musician on or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's a nice song. Or just being out and like, oh, what's that song? But you're right. If I could listen to my playlist all day long, I'd be happy as a clam. Now you've brought up such, you, you transition us well into topics, Jenny. Thank you. Of a certain age, as Gen X and boomers age, they confront living alone. Now I know, Holly, this doesn't really apply to you because you, you, you have, this really is for Jenny and I, but our generation, 
Okay, in 1960, just 13% of American households had a single occupant, but that figure has risen steadily, and today it is approaching 30%. For households headed by someone 50 or older, that figure is 36%. Nearly 26 million Americans 50 or older now live alone, up from 15 million in 2000. Older people have Hello, TB, by the way. Welcome to the backstage. Older people have always been more likely than others to live by themselves. And now that age group, baby boomers and Gen Xers, make up a bigger share of the population than at any time in the nation's history. The trend has also been driven by deep changes in attitudes surrounding gender and marriage. People 50 plus today are more likely than earlier generations to be divorced, separated, or never married. This does not apply to you, Holly. Please don't divulge anything here. (laughs) (laughs) Women in this category have had opportunities for professional advancement, home ownership, and financial independence that were all but out of reach for previous generations of older women. More than 60% of older adults living by themselves, by the way, are females. This was written by, in the New York Times by Dana Goldstein and Robert Gabeloff. Now, I do argue that I don't know if they're right about living well and retiring. Like, they say that they're not going to live long if you live alone. And I I argue that's not true. (laughs) Because I feel so happy. I don't know, Jenny, can you answer that? The test is, for me, I was like, they said we're going to die soon and we ain't living well and we're lonely. I argue- I don't think this, that's true. I don't think that's true. I think that I will say that I, the, the loneliest I've ever felt, which I am not alone in this, was during COVID because I lived alone. So I was the loneliest and it led to some stupid choices. I will admit that. But, um, it, I was alone, so it was the the- and it, it became a desperation. It became a desperation. I'm very much aware of it um, now. And that's the show that I'm going to talk about later is about is my desperation to find a mate because, but all of a sudden, um, I can honestly say that when I decided to just really concentrate on the show that I'm working on and and like get up, get off all my apps and everything, I'm pleasantly, happily uncoupled. <laughs> Like I'm, what is the show? Oh, this my one woman show that I'm working on is called Desperate Digital Dating Diary, a TT Talk. So it's set up like a TED Talk, but it's a TT Talk because it's me talking to all my <laughs> nieces. Um, so it's a it's a, a desperate digital dating diary, and I have one, a very desperate digital dating diary, and it's about, but it's also about how I mean this article kind of reinforces some of my insecurities that I talk about because my desperation comes from my culture, not acknowledging me as a human being without a partner. Um, Latinas are bred for marriage from birth. So if you're not married, I'm not an adult. I don't have a voice. I'm an afterthought. And um, culturally, and I talk about all this in my plan, I talk about how I thought I was immune to that, but that's the kind of stuff that's that's in there. You know, that's it's so deep in my psyche and my subconscious that it led me to do really to, to go out there and just, you know, get together with people that I that I had no common interest with, but just like, oh my God, we both love Seinfeld. This is going to work. <laughs> you know? But it's a desperation for that. But I think that I, I am currently, like Marina, very happy to be single. And I'm happy when I see, like my mother made me cry when she said, oh, Jenny has no responsibilities. 
And I, and when I, she saw that she made me cry, she said, I mean, you don't have to answer to a husband. You don't have to answer to children. You march the beat of your drummer. So do you have responsibilities? Yes, but they're all yours and you don't have to. I said, yeah, but it's also hard to have all my responsibilities to be all mine. And people don't realize that either that when you're alone, that everything is yours and like all the burden is on you. And sometimes in my culture, that's not valued. Now, TB writes, I didn't get married until I was 29 wasn't lonely then and was surprised I found someone I wanted to be with like that. Wasn't even looking. Yeah, I did a joke about it. When you're not looking, that's when they come. I think I stopped looking, but subconsciously I'm still looking so they're not coming. <laughs> I have n- no interest and I feel like I'm going to regret it from this article. This article did tap into some feelings of like, oh my God, am I yeah. going to be okay when I get older and who's going to take care of me? I've I talk to my nieces a lot just so I make sure they come visit me. Me too. In the, in whatever <laughs> home. No, me too. You're I'm smart. Like, You're I'm, smart. I'm, I'm You're with smart. you on that. Who's going to... I'm also told by all my friends, all my, especially all my Latin friends, well, Jenny, who's going to take care of you if you don't have kids? And I'm like... But I know so many people that don't take care of their parents at all. Exactly. Go to a nursing home and see how many kids go visit. Yeah. I mean, David Arnold, God bless his soul. He had that joke about he knows right away who's what kids are going to be taking care of him. I mean, he passed, but like, which of his kids would take care of him, which wouldn't, you know what I mean? And I see so many people my age, older and younger, that don't take care of their parents at all. So I think it really depends on the relationship that you have with your kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, this is the line. Research is unequivocal that people aging alone experience worse physical and mental health outcomes and shorter lifespans. I don't think it's unequivocal. I think I agree with you. I agree with you. let Let me tell you something. I wholeheartedly disagree with that because... As someone that has had two kids, um, I had root canal. I had a root canal with both pregnancies in the seventh month of pregnancy. I had a root canal. Okay. I have lost so many teeth. I have lost hair. Uh, I used to have the cutest little body, that crap. I mean, I build it. I do CrossFit, but it was destroyed, like broken down like a hurricane, like a tornado. Kids take everything from you. Those prenatal vitamins are not for the baby. That's for your ass. You know what I'm saying? Like you, like they take, they like, it's like you're a hollowed out woman. I'm sorry. I never had a gray hair before I had kids. They take, they take your hairline, your youth, your dreams, your sleep, your breasts, your coochie, your thighs. I used to have tight thighs for this shit. Like, I don't want to hear it. So when they sit there and say, you're, no, you're not. No, you're I not. When I see my not. friends who have never had kids, they've never had an episiotomy. They've never pushed and heard some shit rip and been like, what was that? That was your vagina. Like, no, no, no. I don't want to hear it. A woman who hasn't had kids, your body is before the hurricane. So <laughs> this whole idea of you're unhealthier, that is some bullshit. I agree. Because children put you through it. Through it. I was up... Half the night last night with my daughter because she has the flu and her period. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you know what it's like to massage a little 15-year-old's tummy for 45 minutes in the middle of the night? In the middle of the night? Teenagers. Oh, my niece is at 16 and I, my eye is ticking. And I said, listen, I don't have a lot. I almost, over the holidays, I had a moment. I had to pick her up after school, okay? She didn't give me the right time. I get to the school, it's, I, and T.T. Rena ain't used to this, okay? And it's nothing but parents and a lot of cars, and she's nowhere. And I'm like, where are you? And I had menopausal rage. And I said, listen, if you don't get <laughs> out here, 
I am leaving your ass. Answer this phone. I called her mom. I called, none of them answered. I said, oh my God. And, I, and then I finally got her on the phone and I said, you know, I'm gonna call your mother. She said, call her. Oh, the rage that went through my body when she said, call her. They know how to hurt too. Uh-huh. They know. And then and then, then add the fact, like you could be a parent, you could have a child who has special needs. My son is on the autism spectrum. Now, is he a brilliant, amazing young man? He's my boo. I love him to death. I wouldn't change a thing. But that's work. That's work. To, to go to IEP meetings, individual educational plan meetings, and find a therapist here and spend night after night looking for a school. Like, are you kidding me? So this whole idea that you are just better off if you're married or with kids. That's nonsense. That's well, absolute nonsense. I have a, one of my nieces um, said to me, oh, I wish my mom was, why can't my mom be cool like you? I said, because of you. That's why your mom can't be cool like me because she had you. If she hadn't had you, she'd be chilling like me. Look how cool I am. I ain't got no kids. <laughs> Just, TV says, TV says, my mom used to say I took all her teeth. <laughs> Yo, you did take her teeth. My children took my teeth. They took my teeth away. And what's so funny is the fact that they know. So we'll, we rag on each other. We have a line. But I'll say things to my son like, where's your left uh, mitten? And he'll be like, what happened to your back teeth? <laughs> like, he'll... Like, he knows. They know they took things from you. They know. The one thing out of this article that's really important, though, that goes off in a different direction is that property, owning a home is a lot harder when you're single because they're not making these smaller homes anymore. And a lot of these corporations are buying out, you know, and so your access to, you know, equity, like we were just talking about, is kind of, it's smaller when you're single because um, because of zoning and construction limitations in many cities and towns, there is a nationwide shortage of homes below 1,400 square feet, which has driven up the cost of the smaller units that do exist, according to research from Freddie Mac. So I know like Jenny, you have your apartment. I have my studio apartment. I've been thinking about, you know, owning property, but it does feel like for the single person, owning a home is is not in reach, really. It's it's a more difficult journey. I, I have a I sit on a weird fence about owning about ownership because, and this is my own personal opinion. In America, you don't own a home, you lease it forever is what you do, okay? Because in the Dominican Republic, once you buy your land and once you've paid off your stuff, you don't keep on paying. But if I don't pay my property taxes, you will take my house. So it's not my house. It's your house. It's the it's the government's house. So I realized that I'm in a situation where, um, and I learned that because I, when I went to China, people say, oh, people can't buy a house. They give you 30-year leases on a house. You can get a 30-year lease on a house. You can get, um, but you can't rent a house. You can't buy a house. And I was like, well, you can't buy a house in America either. You don't own land. The government leases it to you and you pay them. Well, there is, there is owning land, there's a thing in New York City called CLT, which we've talked about, which is um, a way of, you know, not displacing people in Harlem. So it gets a little complicated well, with no, that. I, I get I that. And I get that you can get, I mean, you can own land, but the thing, the fact that you have to, I'm not still paying taxes on my watch. I own it. I can't do that with property, you know, and that that's my opinion about it. But you know, I, I am also in a, in a very, ble- I don't know about you, but I'm in a very blessed position that I can 
I can, I'm never going to get kicked out of my apartment unless I stop paying rent. Like, so I'm never looking like I can live there until the day I die. I'm perfectly fine in my little box. I'm fine. Um, would I like a place? I look at things, but I will say to that point, I'm constantly looking on Zillow. Like I'm constantly looking at apartments, but it's more like if money was no object, I can go look on corporate group. And that's what I do. And look at these beautiful apartments. That's, that's my porn because <laughs> I can't afford it because I know that I can't say ever, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll make it, we'll get a nice, a big enough gig that I can buy one of those cash. But that's the only way I'd want to buy something if I could buy it cash. It's, it's just like when you get older, you have to downsize. Um, and, I, and I had this interesting conversation with my mother again about, you know, her home and what she plans. She wants what, what you want. And she has a house in North Carolina which, you know, as she's getting older, it's getting harder to clean. So when you live alone, and she has a husband, but when you get older and you live alone and you have a bigger space, it becomes a burden to clean that. And and then also like where you choose to live, if you are that type of person that wants to be taken care of when you get older, your choice of where you live depends on where you need to be taken care of. And you need to be fair to the people who are going to take care of you. Like, we're all, my family's all scattered. I have family in San Francisco. I have some people, my sister, thank God, you know, she recently said this to me, oh, you're going to be difficult when you get older, <laughs> which told me she's already decided she's going to be there to take care of me, you know, but it's, she's in Chicago. So I may have to, as I get up in there in older age, I'm the only one in New York City. I may have to make a choice to leave New York. I would love to go to Vermont. That's where I would love to go. That's my fantasy, right? Woodstock, Vermont. But ain't nobody there. So if I make that decision, I have to also think about, I'm also making it very difficult for people to take care of me. So I have to create a community there or go there with someone. So the idea of buying a home in Vermont, I've had to slow down because I go, oh, Oh, I'm by myself doing this. These are things I never really thought about. This is why like dating becomes like, like you said, Jenny, it becomes kind of like a desperate thing because you're like, I would like to go to Vermont, but I can't because I'm single. Shit. Oh, TV says here, Airbnb is taking over lots of small homes. And, and also they used to build starter homes more in the past. Now you can't find new houses with less than three beds because the banks won't finance smaller ones. Good point. Wow. Thank you. What's crazy is that I'm living the opposite. I'm living the opposite as a married woman with kids. A lot of apartment buildings don't want to build more than two bedrooms because they don't want families there. So it's almost like they try to force families out of New York and into the burbs, whereas I don't want to live in a three-bedroom house. I want to live in a three-bedroom apartment because I'm married and have two kids. So I see that. Yeah. But I also think if they're not renting to smaller homes, that's also some way of, discrimina of discrimination because I can't know some families can't afford, like you said, a bigger home, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm constantly, my husband and I will like look at apartments and it's like, it's a two bedroom. They're like, but it could be a three bedroom. And it's like, it's not, it's a two bedroom. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's really hard to just start, have a family here in New York city and be like, we're going to be in a three bedroom apartment you're either really wealthy or really poor. Like there's not very much of an in-between for families here in New York City. Yeah, there is. It's my mom was thinking about buying some property in New York. I said, listen, <laughs> this, you got to do some serious like homework and because there's so much corruption too with it. Like 
You 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 got to get into the community board, which I am. You got to be on the task force, which I am. You got to know everything that's going on in the area. And you got to know, like, I didn't even know, like, part of the lower owned apartments in New York, you can't, like, profit off of those because those are the uh, price of those apartments have to stay the same to keep affordability in like Harlem. I live in one of those apartments. I live in a, in a rent stabilized built oh. an apartment. And I'll show you this. I lived in, I live in a rent stabilized built building. And at one point I made so much money. I raised the the requirement for my line completely for the whole line. They, it changed the, the requirement to get into it because of my salary at one, one year. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And so, because it is considered lower income and I was making I made really good money um, that one year <laughs> and it took me over the top and it changed the requirement to get into those buildings. But it's really hard to get into those. And I, I mean, I'm for I'm all for the, the, the brand is too damn high guy. Like I'm all for that. Cause Jimmy, what's his name? Jimmy something? Yeah, Jimmy. And uh, Marina, I have a question for you. Um, the community boards, is there like a general place where you could find your community board? Because I see because where I live, I technically would belong to the Times Square community board. But I think those are more businesses. I don't think they would let me. I probably have to join the Hell's Kitchen community board, which is technically not my name. Neighborhood. You can Google it, and you could also find them on Facebook. You could, and you could also write your senator and find out. Yeah, I'm gonna. I will definitely do that. Wow, I used to live in Washington Heights. Well, I live in Times Square now. Yeah, yeah I was born and raised in Washington Heights. Yeah, I was born in Queens. So time. <laughs> yeah, I used to live on 163rd in Broadway. Oh, you? Live, I used to work at the hospital. Oh wow, that's where I had my daughter. That's where I had my daughter. Oh, that's the best child, children's hospital in New York. It's really good. It's a good hospital. Oh, that and a good transition hospital. <laughs> uh, speaking of hospital, God, you're so good. Breast Cancer Gaps Project aims to improve outcomes for black women. Adrian Jordan, a black breast cancer survivor, was inspired to help other black women get tested and screened for breast cancer as a result of her survival via early detection. She knew that when detected early, most breast cancers are treatable. However, she also knew that black women's breast cancer fatality rate is 40% higher than that of white women. Again, I will say, she's gonna kill me. My assistant, she left it at there as a blurb and I said to her, you cannot leave it right there. You cannot just say that black women's breast cancer fatality rate is 40% higher than that of white women without explaining why. You cannot. It is offensive and it's racist to leave it there. And I'm gonna, I strongly want to say it is offensive and it is racist to leave it there because that makes it sound like black women just get um, breast cancer. They just die from breast cancer when that's not, the, that's not a fact. The fact is, is that we're not detected early and when we go to the doctors, they don't believe us when we tell them what is going on. So you cannot leave it there. Now, I love this thing, two-step important, um, is, is what she's doing is she's also talking about authentically leading the charge and education. So Chris Newcomer, who is white, knew that as two white women, they had to step aside and let black women take the helm. Very important. This is a new thing that's happening now in these conversations that I love. White women are actually taking responsibility for like just being this white savior. They're like, let me just take a step back and let black women, or if it's like in Iran, take a step back, let the women there take charge and deal with it. 
You know, I, I've been hearing this a lot more and I give white women credit for that. We don't have to give them credit. <laughs> so I'm going to yeah. give them credit for that. Pass the mic. Right. Pass the mic. Right. And TB says that comment, making it sound like it's the fault of black women when they, you know, you say that 40% higher than that of white women. Also, um, number two, to do this, they developed um, a We Matter campaign, a series of video messages created by and for black women that encourage breast cancer screening, which is important. Um, they had a survey to understand also why black women get mammograms at lower rates. So you're not just making them victims and pointing the finger as it's their fault. You got to ask why. You know, there's a fear of mammograms, also of cancer and death, confusion around basic information, education. How do I get insurance? How do I get an appointment? Do I need referral? What age do I start? Right, Jenny, you had to deal with all of this in the even in the Latina community. Yeah, right? am I right? Absolutely. So this 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 article says that it's just um, black women, but it's actually uh, black. More white women will get diagnosed with breast cancer. More blacks and Latina will die of breast cancer, and that's that's the fact right there. Or just women of color in general die of fact uh, of the, of breast cancer, and it is because of lack of access. It is because of cultural myths, and it is because of just. Um, or, or ignorance. Uh, I just lost an uncle to cancer on Saturday. And I will tell you, thank I'm you. So sorry. Thank you. But I will tell you that I'm livid. I'm livid at him for not telling me. I found out when he died that it was cancer, like didn't tell me uh, and didn't tell my family. The people who knew were sworn to secret secrecy because he didn't want anybody knowing his business. And he, so in my opinion, he committed suicide. And, and that's what happens in our communities when you don't want to talk about something. And it's very upsetting to know that a person in my family, knowing who I am as a cancer advocate, would not even confide in me or even seek the help because of shame because it was prostate cancer and he was ashamed and um as far as i'm concerned he committed suicide i hate to say that but that's how i feel it is demoralizing to be sick and not be heard it is demoralizing to be to have access to health care and still be thrown away which has happened to many of us. Uh, we were thrown away. Uh, Marina was not heard by her. Even oncologists would not hear her at one point. We are thrown away and it is, it's dehumanizing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Is, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's important, Jenny. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And also I'm sorry for that that had to happen in your own family where, you know, and that has happened in my family as well. I had a, a cousin by marriage who just went, the other direction in treatment of breast cancer and passed away, you know, and I don't, I try not to fault them. I just feel like what can we do to better provide this information in our own communities? And I think this woman provided some information that was very specific, you know, videos, barbershops, hair salons, churches, community boards, task force in the community. When you're that affected by something, you get, I use this word catalyst. What is the catalyst for getting involved? Why do I talk about it on stage? Why do I say to women, it is important. There is no way in the world I'm leaving this stage without telling these women to get mammograms. We just came out of a pandemic. A lot of women, specifically black women, have put off their mammogram appointments. And we have to go beyond 
in getting those appointments because they will, the mistakes, the errors, I think there was this assumption that these roles that they have as doctors means that they're above us. Thank God I had you, Jenny. You know, you came into that room with me and I will never forget it. You helped me out at the most crucial point in my life, making the most important decisions. I don't know how I would have done without your help. You can't help everyone, Jenny, and you can't take it on. And some people leave this world in the way they... They chose. They do. They yeah. chose. But let me tell you, Jenny, you've helped a lot of people and I'm one of them. And you made me feel heard that day when my oncologist failed me. So thank you. No, it's important. And then That's I think tough. It is. It's very tough. And I think that I love this article because it is, it's up to us to spread the word. We have to say, those of us who survive, there are people who choose to survive. They Like I, I was in cancer counseling up until last July and women were just like, well, it happened. And I, they put it away in a box. And it's because I said, but it's, it's, to help what I call the people that I call the civilians in their lives because they don't want to be in it. People don't want to hear us talk about it. They're like, it passed, you're over it, bye, bye, bye. But if we don't keep talking, someone is not going to hear it. Someone who needs to hear it is not going to hear it. You have to be the squeaky wheel in your life. Being sick in America is a job. It is a full-time job and you need to treat it as such or else you're going to get fired in the worst way. And, and it's up to us who have been who have been long employed to tell the people this is what you need to do this is what needs to happen there is no shame in the word cancer and there is no shame you didn't do you did not bring this upon yourself and and with women please to so the women out there you know how many women i dealt with who said that they wouldn't oh they're not cutting off my breast he'll leave me guess what he's gonna do it anyway <laughs> You know, he'll you'll leave you like you'll leave you. Forget him leaving you. You'll leave you. Yeah. And I've seen it. I've seen women get left and be and die um, because of the shame and alone because of the stigma that comes along with cancer. I have a sticker that said I had cancer, not cooties. And I feel really strongly about that because in our communities, we still treat it like cooties. Well, I see a strong I mean, I, and I hope I'm just. I hope anybody doesn't think I'm just trying to make it about myself, but I do see a strong correlation in like on melanated communities of avoiding when something is wrong or something is present. Like I just remember I had to go through three evaluations to get my son, you know, for diagnosed on, on the autism spectrum. But I had people around me in my family like, why are you letting doctors get to him? He's fine. And they even had some people that were angry with me, you know, until they realized, no, he, he does need help in a certain way. And I, I feel like that there's just this fear in the Black community of finding out that something is wrong and something needs to be taken care of. And I mean, I really went through the wall for my son. You know, most children, white children who were diagnosed with autism is at the age of two or three. But with Black children, it's the age of eight or nine. So you have a whole... Up until third, fourth grade, thinking you're just a bad kid, you're stupid, you don't belong. And we think how many generations of Black people have fallen through the cracks just didn't know that they're on the autism spectrum. You know what I mean? And went through their lives just feeling like something's wrong with me. I'm not accepted or I'm a bad person or I'm stupid. And then how many Black people, how many Black women are dying from breast cancer just because they have the stigma of finding out, like, I don't want to find out because I'll scratch it and then I'll see all the, all the other things underneath it. You know what I mean? Then I'll fall down a rabbit hole. Well, you're already in a rabbit hole and you're either choosing to dig out or not or let it swallow you even more. But I do see a real strong correlation 
within a black and brown community of not wanting to find out something is wrong. Yeah, and you have, you have to get ahead of it because they're already not listening to you. But to, to that point, do you think, how much of it do you, you, both of you ladies think, has to do with the way that the black and brown community depends so much on God and, and faith and they're like, well, um, why should I see anything wrong because God's going to fix it or God's going to, you know, how, how do you feel about that's that? That's why we have to put these people, that's why we have to think about solutions and the solution is to put these um, conversations in the church, right? And to put these conversations in places where we commune, you know, barbershops, hair salons, absolutely. I've heard people say things like, why would you get your son any kind of therapy around autism? You should just pray. Pray. Pray for God to give me information and I got it. So like, why would I not go with that? People want to rely on prayer and it's like, what God gave, God gave me a brain to act on it and to find information and do things and have a sense of agency. Not like I'm just one of God's children. And he's going to take care of me. You know, God gave you a brain to use it. These are the same people who say a, a child that was raped should rely on God to have that baby, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the same people. So, you know. Mm -hmm. We do have to get out, not on that note. <laughs> That was such a hard note to get out on. But I'm uh, sorry. I was going to talk about Twitter, but you know, whatever. Elon Musk is, he's his own worst enemy. I, he's going to, yeah. He's going to, yeah. he's a mess. He's going to even know what to That's say. That's going to implode. I'm just leaving. I'm just watching from the sidelines. I'm just not even, I'm not, I don't, he is trash. I agree. <laughs> TV, TV said he is trash. TV said yeah. he's trash and I agree. There's nothing we can do for him. And it's also like, I feel like he wants to get a rise out of black people when he's <laughs> trashing um, all this stuff. It, he's he's taking a, a page from Kanye West, Trump, and the rest of the men out there who feel like they need this freedom of speech to act like complete fucking morons. Sorry. But um, yeah. It just looks stupid. <laughs> it just looks stupid. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Marina. I agree. Finding more and more that, you know, to a lot of people, it's like they don't want equality or they don't want, you know, uh, justice. They just want to be able to be an evil white man. Yes. <laughs> it's like you just want to emulate that. That's not that's not equality. That's not justice. Full you know, circle. You just want to be able to you just want to be the evil white guy. Like stop. And to me, it's like, you know, maybe if you didn't think the white man's ice was colder, we wouldn't be in a situation with you. Mm hmm. It's that access. It's America. It's that thing that they've sold to, to even white Americans as I've traveled. They are poor as shit, man. Yes. They are struggling. They are on drugs. We, I don't hear this conversation from the Republican Party. You know why? Because they're selling them this division. And they're making them think that if they were Republicans, they could be like them. There's no hope for you. I'm telling you, they don't want you to be like them. They don't want you to, they don't want you in first class. You white, poor motherfucker, understand it. <laughs> it's true. You're right. All the people that embrace Trump, they, Trump wouldn't let them use the bathroom at Trump Tower. Like, he wouldn't let you pass the lobby. Like He was heartbroken that those are the people who loved him. He was heartbroken this because he wanted to be part of the elite. <laughs> and he was heartbroken those people loved him. He hated You think he'd go to Appalachia and, and go eat at a greasy spoon? Hell no. It you says don't see here, Trump TV in no says, Cracker Barrel. 
He removed the COVID misinformation rule. People are free to post anything no matter how. Yeah, it's a mess. But here's the thing. That's why all of the ads have also pulled out. So you can be an evil white man if you want to. But what we're learning is on some level, we are protected by ad sales. So ad sales pulling out of Twitter, you can be uh, as rich and moronic as you want to, but you ain't going to make no money Mm -hmm. because ad sales is important for that. So there it is. I want to thank you ladies both for being on Friends Like Us today. I really appreciate you both. I adore both of you. You're so talented and funny. And I I wish I want to see both of you flourish. I hope this play continues and gets expanded. Holly, tell our listeners where they can find you. Thank you. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as Holly Harper 5. And on the book face, this is Holly Harper. Um, And LinkedIn is Holly Harper. And with friends like us, you are always going to learn something new. Thank you, Jenny. Hi, I'm Jenny Saldana. You can find me on Instagram on Little Brown Girl Show. I am debuting my one-woman show on January 15th at the Triad Theater. Tickets are on sale on Eventbrite. You can look up under TT. It's called Desperate Digital Dating Diary. A TT Talk. You can buy it on the website at Triad or um, Eventbrite. Right, just look up TT Talk. It's one day only. It's a Sunday matinee. So please, please, please come and support uh, Latinas in theater and women of color in theater. And we're friends like us. We don't need no paper bag. (laughs) 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 Yes. Marina Franklin here. Go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you don't need Twitter. Even better. Even though I'm still on there. Yeah. You don't need the tweet, we'll give you the deets. Yeah, exactly. You don't need the tweet, we'll give you the deets. Yes, I love it, Holly. Check Check us us out.